0: I go from living up there in a 10,000 square foot home to literally sleeping in a nine by nine storage unit on Mountain Industrial Boulevard in Tucker. Um, it was in that storage unit, certainly humbling, um, certainly depressing. Uh, but I was depressed even when I had the money in the cars. Um, if you had the big car and the nice house, everybody assumes your life is perfect. But I was a scared little boy on his own. Uh, and I was using money as my crush to get me through, um, this, this homelessness was a centering for me.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Disruptor Studio where we have deep, non-traditional conversations with people who inspire transformation, innovation, and greatness. And today we have just another wonderful guest on the show here. We have a good friend, Jay Bailey. Jay does incredible work with the Russell Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship here in Atlanta, and we will definitely talk more about that during our conversation. But one thing about Jay is that every time I'm around him, and I think everybody else who's around him would agree with us, he's just inspired. He has this raw passion and raw energy when he speaks, and I really think at its core is his authentic passion for what he does. You know, part of Jay's role is to build innovators and leaders, and to do that, you really got to wonder what is that visionary drive, that inspiration from within someone like Jay. So I really enjoyed the time that I got to spend with Jay here in the Destructor Studio. Not only will you hear about the work he's doing, you're going to hear some interesting stories about what really is the driver from within and the journey that he has gone through to get to where he is now. That's really building an amazing future for everyone around him and frankly for the world. So join me now as we have Jay Bailey on the Disruptor Studio.
0: Jay Bailey, how you doing? Man, I'm good. Good morning. Good what day is it? Is it when what's today? It could be any day when
1: people are checking this out. But yeah, it is. We are here early in the morning. I don't even know what day it is. You're right. You you're know? right,
0: brother. No, I'm glad to be here with you, brother.
1: Well, welcome to the disruptor studio. I'm thrilled to have you on here. And uh, and you know, kind of the like I was telling you, you're part of one of the one of our early guests and kind of our relaunch in this COVID reality world. So I'm very excited to have you on and and, 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 and you know, one of the things as as I was getting ready for this, uh, I had someone tell me uh, your your name came up because you know your name comes up comes up all the time, which is why we have you on the sh- on, on the show here. And someone said, "Oh Jay, every time he talks, I just want to do whatever he says. He's just his, his passion every time he speaks." But so Before we even get to who whoever you are, that is, give me the name, bro, I want to know. Oh, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you the, I'll give you the name, I'll give you the name, but but the. Uh, but so where where does that passion come from? Is I, have you always been this? I mean, um, one, do you even realize your passion as a speaker?
0: You know, uh, people, I've I've never considered myself a motivational speaker or a speaker. Um, you know, I think that it it just comes from a very authentic place. Um, that I like to just talk about what's real and what's on my heart. Um, and oftentimes, you know, when people kind of label people speakers, they usually come with like this canned presentation and these right. big hard lines to end with. And oh, I got you on this. And a lot of times, it's more about the the individual on the stage, uh, and less about the people in the crowd. And I'm all about the people, man. So I think if the energy comes from anywhere, it comes from people. Uh, and I feed off the energy from people. And it's, it's always been that type of thing for me. But, you know, I think that you, you we're going to get into my story. Um, certainly, it wasn't always like that. And it's uh, but when when I'm looking at purpose being driven, really wanting to search significance and relevance uh, and just loving people. I love our community. I love our people. I love being a servant. Uh, and so our our communities deserve authenticity. Right. Our communities deserve energy. Our, our communities deserve the kind of hope that comes from people that believe better as possible. And that energy comes from that.
1: Yeah, well, and I'm glad you mentioned that term authenticity because that's something that comes up so much. And, you know, my belief, that's really the secret to leading and, and innovating and disrupting. And I think I think that's kind of the that that, that X factor. That I think really you need to have to to drive to 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 do difficult things and -hmm. and, and, and get people to follow you. So 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 speaking of it, let's kind of start from today, and then I definitely want to go go back a little bit. But for for someone that uh, does not know you, which I'm like, well, where have you been? Particularly oh. in Atlanta, but even beyond Atlanta. But let's talk about what you do today. What's what's? Uh, how do you describe your role? And let's you know, obviously, uh, um, I, I didn't set it up here, but uh, you you lead the Russell Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship. But I, I think you have, I think your role is even outsized just from one facility too, in terms of what mm. your mission and purpose is. But what what do you, what do you do? How how do you talk about it?
0: You know, it's funny. The um, the last time I had a job. When I when I left that job, I made my soon to be wife a promise um, that I'd never get another job again. Um, I've been an entrepreneur most of my life and knew that uh, I could chart a path and control my own destiny. Uh, and it was dramatic, bro. We were down by the riverside holding hands, praying. Um, Chris, who you've met on my team, who's been with me seven, eight years, strict instructions, any re- recruiters or headhunters, they call the answer is no. Uh, until this opportunity came along. Uh, The H.J. Russell Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship uh, is more than just a program. You're talking about the legacy of one of the greatest entrepreneurs the city has ever produced, Um, 54,000 square feet, Uh, the embodiment of hope. And I think as you talk about COVID and post-COVID, the community is going to need more than symbols of hope. It's going to need institutions that manufacture it systems that are designed to build, to combat systems that were designed to destroy. Um, This place embodies hope. It's 54,000 square feet. It's a a full city block wide. This is where we're going to be able to bring the best resources in the region under one roof uh, and give the access opportunity and exposure necessary to the community. Um, As you've heard me say many times, man, I think the only difference between Buckhead and Bankhead is access opportunity exposure. But where does that live? Where's the nexus of that? Um, it's amazing. We're not even fully open, Alex. And before COVID, we we're seeing anywhere from 800 to 1,500 people come through our doors. Uh, it's a safe space for Black entrepreneurs, Black small businesses, a safe space for them to fail and fly. Um, this, is, um, this is special and it's certainly the most significant thing that I've ever been a part of. Um, there are very few times in life where you get to be a part of something that you know will outlast you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are even rare moments where you get to be a part of something that could potentially change the course of history. Uh, and I found myself at the Russell Center with the opportunity to shift the course of our city going forward for generations that I'll never meet.
1: And my and my sense with you, the impact being out, being beyond the building, the building is special it's in itself. But the impact is well beyond it. I mean, it's about changing, uh, you know, the city, the region, how the country. You know, it's really changing entrepreneurship and changing so much of, you know, the norms of less than ten percent of, and and I'm being generous at that number, but less than ten percent of, you know, uh, entrepreneurs, especially venture backed entrepreneurs, are are black, Latin, or women. And I mean, you're just to, and I think just for someone who may have not heard of your what you're doing before or even this topic i mean that you're really trying to drive change and something that has been just systemic and and just massive and mm-hmm. big for the country so this yep. is so so i i think it's important to do that and my sense is that's why you're you're here um you know it's because of the impact you could do is is it's much bigger than the building itself too
0: I've been to Silicon Valley. I've spent an extensive time out in Mountain View. Uh, I've been to Austin, uh, spent time at MIT and Harvard up in Cambridge and what they've done, the Research Triangle, Raleigh-Durham, all of these epicenters of innovation. None of them are cool as Atlanta. Yep. Um, And none of them have gotten diversity right. Um, We see this opportunity in Atlanta. Our building, not only is it the 54,000 square feet, the Russell family owns the 40 some odd acres around it. We're directly across the street from Morehouse, Clark, Spelman, Morris Brown, ITC, Morehouse School of Medicine. Georgia Tech is two miles down the road. Georgia State is one mile down the road. In Atlanta, Georgia, we have more African-American enrolled college students than any other city on the planet I mean, when you start to think about what Stanford did when it birthed Google and birthed Silicon Valley out of one institution, what could we do south of I-20 to create this innovation district that literally is a system, not just a program, but a system and a concentrated platform for businesses to grow to scale to develop to build community and i think that's also part of the the missing link when we talk about inspiring entrepreneurs and small business owners we look at it from an episodic programmatic lens uh and that's never what's reached the hearts of people uh you know my 3c's are community culture and covenant if you start with community culture and covenant You wrap around world-class curriculum, you wrap around world-class instructors, that community, that culture, that covenant creates something that's way beyond just a class. It's a feeling, it's a connection, Mm -hmm. it's a community, it's it's a fraternity, and that you can't make that episodic. Now you're talking about the life cycle of a business and support. Now you're talking about a continuum of engagement, and that's how you start to shift Um. People buy in, people believe, people gain hope from it, people get aspiration from it, people get mentors, role models. They see what their future could look like and they believe that it's possible. That can't just come from a curriculum, that's right. got to come from something I feel deep inside because I believe and I've been given the tools that I need to believe.
1: Right. And, and you know, I definitely want to come back to this topic too, because I think what's the the challenge is one is kind of really taken on structurally something that, that, that's massive. Yet we understand the opportunities are tremendous um, to, 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 to really accomplish what you're, what you're working on accomplishing. And I know you will get, but also this, you know, you're shaping leaders And, and, and which is hard because there's, you know, not everybody is, has the DNA to, to be an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Not everybody has, now you're, now you're opening the opportunity spectrum, but what you're doing, even if you put all these systemic things aside, Yep. It is hard what you're doing too, uh, you know, in a perfect world. So, and I do want to come back to that because I think there's so much to learn from you and, and, um, whether someone's an entrepreneur or in a corporation or nonprofit in terms of what you're doing, but let's, let's go back to, uh, to Jay Bailey, uh, well before, you know, Russell center was, you know, Russell center, maybe even before. let's actually go. Um, you went to, uh, UGA. So I made sure I did not wear my. You know, I didn't even go to Tech, but I, I, I almost out of, of you know out of to have some fun with you. I was gonna wear my Georgia Tech hat that was given by uh, our, our 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 friend here, uh President Anhel Cabrera, which I know he's my
0: buddy. So you know what I would not do it, man. Under his leadership, Georgia Tech is gonna to go to new heights. I love it.
1: Wow, <laughs> man! I'm on. gonna
0: I'm gonna send this <laughs> clip to
1: him. Yeah, and no you know doubt. he loves uh, social media and all that, and I'm, it's going to be blasted all over. And so, just be ready. <laughs> and you might even get some Georgia Tech tickets too. But no uh, doubt, the yeah. no president. Yeah. So, uh, so let's, so, uh, so let's, uh, but let's go back. So, first of all, um, talk about your, your 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 path to. So, where did you grow up? First of all, you, I mean, you grew up here in, uh, in Atlanta. But uh, tell me about mm-hmm. growing up and and, I mean, and before you even got to UGA, what was even in your head in terms of what you would do when you got older.
0: Entrepreneurship has always been a part of my life. Um, I was always an enterprising kid. I was a kid who sold popsicles for a dime in my driveway. Uh, I used to, uh, and I shared this story with you, I used to be so cold with a brother that I used to charge people 50 cents to fight in my backyard so they wouldn't get caught in the front yard. I had all of this like energy, this economic energy. I love making money. Um, I was a Lashkey kid, um, you know, working class parents, uh, they came from rural America to Atlanta for opportunity. Um, I was a horrible student. Uh, mm. had all the potential in the world. I was branded gifted in kindergarten, uh, but I treated school like construction work. Here's my hard hat. Here's my lunch pail, 3 p.m. Mm. Leave me alone. Don't bother me until tomorrow. Uh, so constantly getting that barrage from teachers and parents and, and peers, and you could do better. Uh, one day I'm riding my bike to the barbershop on Canler Road here. And um, when I was growing up, bro, you could have put a Ferrari next to a Bentley and <laughs> I'd have taken Mustang GT 5.0 every day of the week. And I pull up to the barbershop, Candler Plaza Barbershop is still there today. And I'll be damned if parked right in front of that barbershop illegally was a black on black convertible Mustang GT and <laughs> I lost my mind. Threw my bike down, ran into the barbershop. I'm 11 years old. Never forget it. Whose car is that? I scream it. Ah, whose car is that? My barber's cutting somebody's hair. He just kind of gives me the universal brother symbol for that. that's me, the that knot. And uh, immediately because of my my consciousness and my conditioning, I thought he was a drug dealer. Mm-hmm. like, who bought that car but somebody that's dealing dope? When I hop in his chair, just as a matter of fact, as I'm asking about the weather, I'm like, John, I didn't know you're a dope boy. He screams at me. Drops the big F-bomb on me. Shut the F up. Turn around and count how many chairs you see in this shop. Um, I said, oh, I don't know, 10? He says, well, each one of these barbers pays me $50 a week to cut hair in my shop. Do the math, Jay. You're smart. Hmm. I'll start doing the math. He said, hold on, before you finish? Well, I got two more shops just like this. Finish the math. So when little Jay Bailey started adding up the zeros and the comma and the carry the one, he said it. He said, I'm an entrepreneur. Man, I own this business. I own my businesses. What you need to do is go find you something you love and go make money doing it. Alex, it was in that instant that I first understood who I was. Hmm. It was the first time anybody had said the word entrepreneur to me. It was the first time anybody had even hinted at the concept of ownership. So my bike ride home fundamentally changed my life. Who owns a tire store? Uh, who owns a public library? Who owns McDonald's? Mom, dad, do we own our house? We do. Self-esteem, self-confidence goes up. Now I'll fight you if you cut through my grass because it's our grass. Right. Um, I love car stereo equipment growing up. My role models were not Ambassador Andrew Young and Martin Luther King. My role models were based on somebody's ability to shake the walls of my house when they drove by. I was completely enamored by big speakers and big cars. I could name, rank and file on every product in any store. After school, I used to hang out at all the local speaker shops, the the pawn shops, uh, the flea markets where they sold car stereo equipment. Uh, One day I stole a magazine out of the back of trade magazine, read it cover to cover because that's another thing. If you gave me a book a page thick for homework in school, I wouldn't read it. If you gave me a book a thousand pages thick on how to rewire a Honda Accord, I'd read it cover to cover, no problem. I read this magazine cover to cover, and there was an advertisement for a wholesaler in that magazine because I had memorized all the pricing in the stores. And in the store, I knew this one speaker cost a hundred bucks, but in this book, I could get one for 50 bucks. It didn't make any sense to me. Um, I'm 12 now that Monday, this is before the 24 hour customer service cycle. I got on the phone, called the 1-800 number. I'm a 12-year-old kid trying to act like I'm 25 on the phone. Uh, And God must have sent me the right customer service agent. This woman sat on the phone with this kid and explained the whole concept of wholesale and retail. And at that point, an entrepreneur was born. Mm. Um, The worst beating I ever got, man, is my dad. Uh, God bless him. Uh, work nights. And when he was sleeping, I borrowed his ATM car because I knew he had this little plastic card, And if you put it in the machine, money would come out. And I borrowed $400 from him. Now, mind you, my dad was a postal clerk. And in the 80s, $400 probably was half of his paycheck, if not more. Right. Um, but once he found out, he got with me. But as soon as I screamed out, the dad, I did it to start my business. He stopped. Wow um so i bought inventory uh, i used to take the marta bus down to the home depot buy a whole slab of plywood put it on the front where the bike racks are drag it all the way home as a 12 year old kid cut it up to build speaker enclosures and i would sell car stereo equipment at slash prices and install right on the side of my house it was the house of boom on the side of my house I install your boom Um, But the knock on effect of that, brother, because if this was today's times, it'd be STEM education. I was dealing with ohms and wattage and had to be able to measure a cubic foot of airspace for an enclosure. That's STEM education. So at that point, my aspiration to be successful in business meant my need for education. I wasn't there anymore because my parents said I should be not there because my teacher said I could do better. No, I was there for selfish, enlightened self-interest. I wanted to get dangerous in what I was doing. So then AP physics, AP calculus, those weighted grade point averages and AP courses raised my GPA up just enough to qualify for the first rounds of the Hope Scholarship that got me to the University of Georgia.
1: Great.
0: Um, You know, and the story continues from there, but that was the birth of entrepreneurship. I bought my first house at 19 at UGA. Um, You know, Part of the story, and if we get into it, has been this long string of trauma. Uh, I'm a firm believer that pain, uh, those that can effectively manage pain, create the best leaders. Those that create loss creates leaders. Um, lost my mother at 19 while I was matriculating at UGA for the first time in my life I didn't have a home to go home to for Christmas but I'm entrepreneurial. so what do I do? I buy a four-bedroom home where I could rent out three bedrooms to my newly acquired frat brothers and that would cover the rent because I didn't even know what a mortgage was. Um, this this tale of entrepreneurship and 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 getting it you know controlling your own destiny has always been a part of my life. So that takes you from 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 Little J up to UGA. If we want to go beyond that, you just let me know, brother.
1: <laughs> well, hey, let's talk a little bit about this this aspect of pain because I think uh, you know, um, and, and again, I, and I do believe that whether you're an entrepreneur in the true definition of it and driving your own business, or you're you're trying to you know impact change in a big corporation, there's an element of grit and mm-hmm. and, and you learn. So talk talk about some of these moments of of, of of pain here. Um and because I think that's really important. Not not even the you're not even about the moment. Obviously that shapes you and shapes who you are. And I think you know, as we had people in Disruptor Studio, it's kind of consistent hearing about it. But then how you deal with it and how you've learned from it uh moving forward.
0: So you know it was nineteen ninety six. I had lost my mother. But what had happened after that, brother, from like 1996 to 2006, um, it was just like a continuous stream of losses. Um, Had to bury all of my grandparents. Hmm. Uh, Had to watch my college sweetheart die of cancer. Um, A first cousin of mine who we lost to gang violence. Um, It was just this continuous stream of losses. And what it did is make me really uh, reclusive. And money became my crutch. I think because of the prevalent taboo of of mental health, um, you know, and and seeking support and therapy in my community is sometimes frowned upon. You know, I just I just retreated, and money became my crutch. I went corporate America for a couple of years after I graduated college. Came home. Uh, At the time, I was in banking. And uh, at that moment, the real estate market had blown up. In fact, that's how I met Michael Russell at the Mm. bank to work with in Atlanta. Um, But the real estate market had exploded and folks were bringing me checks for 50, 100, $200,000 at that time. At that time, I wasn't making that a year. And just like a kid in the hood, what do you do? (laughs) Uh, Real estate investment. Well, what's that? And I got this cursory education from all my clients and customers uh, and remember, I'm entrepreneurial. And at this point, I'm entrepreneurial. I'm essentially on my own because my father and I had a really large falling out. So he went his way. I went mine. Thank God we break out quite a bit. But I was an alone kid, an early 20-year-old kid on my own. Uh, you know, you got to think about a 19-year-old kid in college uh, who had a mortgage, uh, a car note, a tuition bill, you know, had to light the pilot light if I needed to. But I'm still trying to study uh, and graduate and hang out with my friends and all of this stuff. So I had to grow up really quickly at an early age. So here I am seeing folks bringing all these big checks in and talking about real estate. I already bought my first house when I was 19. I still own that house. Um, at that time I still own that house. Um, and so I quit, I left, I started a real estate business. Um, had a little car boutique where I did like car brokerage cause I still love cars. Um, and I got into the real estate game. And, and the thing is I was wide, but I wasn't deep. I didn't have a deep understanding of the industry or the organization of it. Uh, but you weren't going to out hustle me. So I did every kind of deal. I flipped houses, built houses, new construction, raw land, you name it, multifamily. Um, and I looked down one time brother at my, my bank statement out of the ATM and it said $3.4 million. Hmm. Um, I was a millionaire. And I was barely 25, maybe 24, 25. And you know, because I did not have good money role models, I tell people the story, and lots of people have heard it. I bought my first big house. Uh, not because it was a sound fiscal decision. <laughs> it was because I was watching MTV Cribs, true oh, story. Yeah. Yeah. And I see Usher Raymond has a house in this neighborhood called Country Club of the South. Oh, yeah. Later find out that Bobby and Whitney live in that neighborhood and other, other athletes and entertainers, and I was black and I had a little bit of money, so that's where I needed to live. Uh, I literally, I was driving a Mercedes S500 at that time. I literally went back to the bank I used to work at, got a $100,000 cashier's check, drove my Mercedes S500 up to Country Club of the South, bribed the guard a hundred bucks to go through the gate, uh, and found a house on the hill, Old South Pass, never forget it. <laughs> Um, we call the realtor from our, our, our car phone. Uh, so we're sitting outside of the listing with $100,000 cashier's check we could close in two weeks. Uh, that home got purchased um, parties, living that life. You know, I was the guy that would blow money fast in the clubs because that was the lifestyle, the image of success for a young black guy with a little bit of money that I got. I didn't get any fiscal responsibility, no, no mentorship or no tutelage on how to maintain, how to grow, how to scale, how to invest, how to protect yourself, uh, how to shield from liability. I didn't get any of that training. I just got the money and knew that I could make more money. So I spent it as fast as I could get it. When the market tanked, I lost everything. Hmm. A 10,000 square foot home in Country Club of the South. It was Alpharetta then. It's now like, what is it? Uh, Creek. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I go from living up there in a 10,000 square foot home to literally sleeping in a nine by nine storage unit on Mountain Industrial Boulevard in Tucker. Um, it was in that storage unit, certainly humbling, um, certainly depressing. Uh, but I was depressed even when I had the money and the cars. Um, if you have the big car and the nice house, everybody assumes your life is perfect. But I was a scared little boy on his own, uh, and I was using money as my crutch to get me through. Um, this this homelessness was a centering for me. Hmm. Um, I remember thumbing through a photo album and seeing all of these random kids and pictures with my family. Um. And I didn't know who they were. They weren't my cousins. They weren't my, my friends that I grew up with. I um, thing about depression, you throw out a lot of the bad memories, uh, but you also throw away a lot of the good because the good is just as painful sometimes. And it clicked, man. This was Christmas dinner. This was Thanksgiving. My mother, when she was living, was a juvenile justice worker. And she knew then, like I lived by now, if you take a kid in a bad environment, no role models, compounded hopelessness for 10 or 15 years, Why are you surprised he's got a gun to your head? If he didn't have any value over his life, how could he possibly value yours? So she used to probably bend the law a bit, but take these kids out of lockup or halfway houses or detention centers and bring them to Christmas dinner, put them around a table, show them what love looked like, what love felt like, Uh, You know, laughing and, and crying and playing and hugging and kissing on each other. And almost every year, I remember she used to make me make my Christmas list in August. She didn't have a lot of money. She made me make my Christmas list in August so she could save the money so by December she could buy some, some kid what they would really want. Because every year she would do it, Alex. She'd be like, Alex, baby, go grab that box under that tree. And you can grab the box and in big letters, it would say Alex on it. And when you tear into that gift, it wouldn't just be a charity kind of throwaway toys for Todd's gift. It'd be something that Alex would really, really, really want. And maybe for the first time in as long as you could remember, you felt seen. You felt special. You felt like you belonged, and she did that on a thirty thousand dollars salary back in the eighties. This was who she was—the first philanthropist that I ever met before I even knew what a philanthropist was. And immediately, all of this training rushed back to me, where this 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 isolation, this this blowing money, this was not who I was raised to be. Uh, it's who I had forgotten that I always was. Hmm. And by the world standards with the cars and the clothes and the houses by the world standards, I had been successful, but I had zero significance. I had done nothing to put a dent in this world. I could spend ten thousand dollars a night in a club, but there was no there was no scholarship in my mother's name. Um, you know, I had done nothing to really make a mark or put a dent in. And at that point, I start chasing significance. Uh, everything started to take off from there, brother. Uh, You know, within four years, I was helping the organization grow to global scale here in Atlanta. Um, First employee for an organization Operation Hope in the southeast and helping grow that organization to the size. And that's where I made the pivot. Um, When I decided that I knew that I had to leave my last organization, uh, we had just had a really big event. Uh, We had had Bill Clinton, several Fortune 100 CEOs. The whole world was applauding. I was getting all these awards. I was an, uh, an advisor to Obama on his business council. Um, but I was back in the city. I was on the 40th floor of the 191 building. Mm-hmm. I was looking out at the beautiful skyline, and I was looking at a city that I was from as a, as a black man, and the graduation rate for kids that looked like me, other black males, at that time was 37%. Hmm. I looked at a skyline from from north to south and as beautiful as it was, we had a population north of 50 percent of African-Americans. But in that skyline, I didn't see a single building that we owned or control. in the black Mecca. So, you know, this fire reignited in me around what could I do to help fortify myself economically to really look at changing that dynamic? Um, You know, when I left hope started a private foundation with my wife, the Phoenix Leadership Foundation uh, with a one word mission statement, exposure. Um, I think exposures or lack of exposure is the greatest contributing factor to poverty or poverty mindset. It was my life story. What I didn't get exposed to, how could I know or aspire to it? Um, Got into a logistics company, true startup. And in fact, one day I'm going to go back and and reengage with that startup for sure. Uh, logistics until this opportunity came along. um, To throw my my name in the hat for the Russell Center, this thing that we could create. Um, But no, I was literally on my my entrepreneurial journey because at the end of the day, brother, when you look at the numbers, uh, it's not even just about race. When we start talking about economics, I think our city loses GDP every year. Our country loses, our world does, because we don't Weaponize the ingenuity that happens on half of our city's population. Uh, No one can tell me that there's somebody more innovative on the planet than a single mother with two kids making 17 grand a year.
1: Right.
0: She problem solves the way that she thinks, the way that she has the grit that you're talking about, the determination and still smiles on Sundays for her children, although it hurts almost every other minute of her life. If we can tap into that grit, that talent, that determination, um, give them pathways to take their brilliant ideas and bring them to a marketplace, give them the hope and belief that all things are possible, I think that we can have a shot at making a shift.
1: So how do you and and I think, you know, obviously with your story, I could see how you're connecting with someone who has who who on paper and and, and and everything they're doing you'd say may, may feel I like have no hope but yet have some hope because they're walking in to see you right I mean just taking mm-hmm. that step to come into Russell Center so w- what is that how do you get someone to start believing in themselves at scale you know they have some belief because they're taking that initial step but you gotta you got to build them up well that's that's a big step.
0: Uh I'll put in a story. Um, there was a group tour in the center, our construction site. Um, there are a couple of officers in the group. Um, I was showing them the, the 5,000 square foot, uh, what we call the Launchpad Innovation Center. I want to bring manufacturing back to the conversation of entrepreneurship mm-hmm. and small business. Uh, African-Americans make up less than 3% of that industry. Uh, so this this officer is in the in the makerspace. So this is before anything's there. There's no equipment. There's nothing. It's just a hollow warehouse. And after the tour, kind of after I explained the vision, he walks up to me. And he's like, "Yeah, Jay, let me ask you a question. Like you were talking about these molding machines and be able to make stuff. And he said, you know, I, I carry this particular Glock pistol." And I can't find anybody that makes a holster that fits it. Are you saying I could bring that in and actually make a, a, a holster for my gun? I'm like, yeah, I don't see why not. Plastic injection molding, the vacuum. We could, we could, we could probably make that. He said, yeah, man, to let me know as soon as y'all get this up, man, because I want to be the first one in here making that. And then it happened, Alex. Hmm. Instantly, he stopped. Because up until that moment, he knew that he was a cop and that he'd probably retire as a cop. And he probably draw his his pension and live a life kind of at six for the rest of his life. In that moment, he made the connection that wait a minute, if I'm having this same issue with this Glock pistol, and you're saying that you can solve that problem for me, and I can make a holster that will solve you know will hold my Glock pistol, yeah. There got to be thousands of other people that carry this same Glock pistol that are having the same problem that I'm having, and I can sell them my holster. In that moment, he saw himself as an entrepreneur, as a business owner, as a boss, somebody that could actually create and generate wealth and control his own destiny. Because prior to then, I don't think that he saw it. And you could see the energy in his eyes. You could see his chest you know, start to flutter a bit. Yeah that moment, he started doing the calculations in his head, just like I was in that barber chair when that guy told me to count how many chairs were in that shop. He saw his future through a different lens, and that had nothing to do with curriculum. That literally just put him in an environment where he started to believe again and saw a future brighter for himself. Not what Jay told him about, not what some speaker kind of inspired him to do. It was internal. And he was in an environment that made him feel like he belonged and that it was possible. That's what we're going to do at scale. It's not just about curriculum or program. It is putting people in an environment where their ideas matter, that their ideas can take life. And it has nothing to do. It could happen in the corner of a room. But to be in the environment where the energy feels that way, I can't wait to reach back out to them. When I'm able to say, yeah, come on in the shop, man. Let's finally make that holster. But also let's look at the business strategy to build this thing out as a brand. What we're going to call it. Let's put a name to it. That's what I live for. And so when we talk about doing that at scale, because we have the institution that carries the weight, just like a Harvard or a Morehouse, the institution carries the weight. Morehouse connects to all the big big uh, firms in, in, in Wall Street. Mm-hmm. More help is the connector. The alumni facilitate the connections, but the institution is what stands. We've never had an institution of advocacy that's from the community, by the community, owned by the community, in the community to support the community. Almost all the time when you talk about incubators, accelerators, programs, or community centers, it's literally where a state or city or county government lends a building to you. We put some resources around it, and there you go for you people. This is different, Alex. This building was built brick by brick by an entrepreneur's entrepreneur. You got to think Mr. Russell built this building nearly 60 years ago in the Jim Crow segregated racist South, a black man building a 50,000 square foot headquarter building in the city of Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Come on, man. What else could be more inspiring than that for a young entrepreneur or small business owner? Um, He intentionally built it where it is, where we are on Northside Drive, 504 Fair Street, directly across the street from Clark, Morehouse, Spelman, Morris Brown, because at that time, Black students couldn't go to UGA. So you have Black students from all over the country, pour, as they still do now, pouring into those campuses in the AUC. But Mr. Russell fashioned his building right across from it so these Black students coming from all over the country could see the manifestation of what was possible for people that looked like them. That aspiration component and belief cannot be understated. When I talked about Bankhead and Buckhead, the only difference being access, opportunity, and exposure, it ain't rocket science, Alex. Why do kids in Buckhead want to be doctors, lawyers, accountants, consultants, who run companies? And kids in Buckhead, I mean, Bankhead want to be rappers, athletes, and dope dealers. Because there's no brilliance on the South side. It is simply an equation of what they see and what they believe. And if we can start to shift that very simple equation in a building that embodies hope, that has all the best resources in the world concentrated in one location, where you can see someone just starting out with their business, or you may run into Tristan Walker, who's done very well, and we're all on the same campus. You can't tell me the energy, the the compounding effect of hope, the compounding effect of proximity, the compounding effect of crashing into one another and believing and aspiring. That's going to happen in spades When we're talking about a space like the Russell Center, now you add to that world-class curriculum, instructors, and the pathway that you need to get there, if we now add to it the mitigating of the mistakes that entrepreneurs and innovators make all the time, let's lessen the number of mistakes that you make based on support, based on experience, based on education, and now we actually start to create something that may change the world. Well, and it seems
1: like so much. You, uh, you give them this visionary, you know, I call this thing called visionary drive where, you know, you talk about with with the uh, uh, the person you made an entrepreneur or solving for the, you know, the Glock for the holder. You know, it's like you gave them a vision and, a, and then that drive. And then it's almost like you almost put blinders on, you know, in terms of how you're going to achieve it, mm-hmm. um, and which is so important. You've seen so many leaders and it seems like you equip them with that. What's, what's the thing that you see? As you have entrepreneurs come through, and again, your mission—I think—the complexity <clears throat> some people don't don't really appreciate because you're trying to really uh, get tap into a population of talent that has not been tapped into.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we know
1: not everybody is going to be a successful entrepreneur. It's just just mm-hmm. just not the way uh, you know entrepreneurism works. What is it that you see when, what's that X factor you look for in someone? And, and, and maybe the flip side of it, what's that thing that you realize, or you have to have a conversation where maybe there's a different path for you?
0: It's, um, it's part of why I want to develop the community. That's why I want to lead with community, culture, and covenant. Everybody's not going to win. And we've got to develop a process where we really double down on our winners, Uh, Those that will chew through a table, those that have the grit, have the idea, have the landscape to actually scale. But what you do in that space is this, that I may have come into the center thinking that I'm a CEO and I want to run the world, but getting into the platform, getting into the programming, seeing other businesses, I may realize that I ain't cut out to be a CEO. I'm really good at marketing. And this CEO needs someone that's really good at marketing. But if we didn't have that community, we never would have intersected. And I think some of those conversations, Alex, are intentional and driven and saying, but our, pro- our process is designed to actually go through that. It, I, I really have stolen the college model where so many incubators, accelerators that I studied before I really got into it, where you and I started this accelerator and in 12 months we're done. Well, we may not have advanced at the same pace. We may not, our ideas may be at different areas, but the episodic nature of the constraints of most programs say that Jay and Alex start on day one and on day 700, we're finished. We're done, we do a pitch. I look at it like the college model. Freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, if you and I are in college and we start on the first day on freshman year, we may not graduate at the same time. I spent five years at UGA. I did a victory lap. Um, But the thing is, if we're sophomores and we don't finish all the requirements for our sophomore year, we don't become juniors If we don't finish all the requirements for our, our senior year. We don't graduate. Same thing with our process that we're trying to build. It's called big ideas, inspire, develop, execute, accelerate, sustain. And in the inspire phase where we're talking about, I'm curious, or I've got, you know, I want to go from curiosity to a concept and develop where I've got a concept, but now can I wrap a company around it? In the execute phase, I see, does anybody care? Are there customers out there for my innovation? Because I think innovation means very little without a customer standing next to it. Mm -hmm. In the accelerate phase, now that you have a company and a few customers, how do you go from those customers to scale? And if you're not ready to move to the next step, you don't move. So, you can have those conversations in those stages about where you're. If if your idea or your problem that you're trying to solve does not create value, you cannot communicate that value. If you can't, if we've discovered that you don't have a customer base, maybe we need a new problem to solve. Or maybe that you have an entrepreneurial mind, but CEO is not where you need to be. But because we created this collaborative community of entrepreneurs and it's supportive, Here's an opportunity with Alex's company. He needs somebody just like you and your strength. Um, never want to tell anybody to give up on their dreams. That's not the shop that we'll be. However, we want to make sure that they have every opportunity to follow them because I'm only in two businesses, Alex. Mm-hmm. I'm in the, the readiness business and I'm in the access business. My job is to create a platform to make sure that companies are ready to do business at the next level, whatever that means for them. I want to be very clear there that uh, I don't want to become another unicorn shop. Um, If someone wants to grow their business to a certain point so they can still take their kids to school every day and they're not dreaming to be the next Google, let's help you get there. Let's try to force you to be nothing more than that. Uh, Let us show you the potential in the landscape of where your idea can go. But also there are very few resources for that guy that has a shop on the west side. Who's doing a solid three hundred thousand in revenue to get him from three hundred thousand to a million? Right now, in that three hundred thousand to a million, in that seven hundred thousand dollar lead, he gets to kind of come out of the survival mode that he's been in for the past ten years. Uh, he hires seven, eight, nine people in that community. Uh, he can now start to think about retirement or investments or expansion or franchising in ways that he couldn't before. And even if he gets the end of his life cycle with that business when he's trying to retire, we have this collaborative community. We can have the conversation about Does someone who wants to acquire that business so that hope, those jobs, that revenue stays in that community. Like this is I have a T-shirt made by not this one, but uh, another one of our companies, Kruvy, Tony Kruver. Uh, he has a shirt that he made for me. that says exit is not my strategy. I don't have, I don't have an exit strategy shop. Exit strategies don't necessarily build communities because I've got to teach a community to see value in its own reflection again. Because right now, unfortunately, one of the only value add propositions for success and wealth in our community is how fast I can move away from it. We've got to create these institutions, these districts, this this pride, this value in our own reflection where we're building the companies that are already in the community raising the capacity of those that are already in the community. So they stay in the community. When a kid graduates from Morehouse, maybe does a dual degree at Georgia Tech, they want to stay in Atlanta because there's an opportunity there. You're talking about the brain drain. Of course, we talk about it all the way, all the time in terms of college students, but we got to think about the brain drain when it leaves the community an aspiration of something greater because they don't see their community as great. Right. Got to get people to start seeing the greatness that lives within their communities, the possibilities that live within their communities. And that can't be driven by exit strategies. That's got to be driven by stay strategies to say we will build this community up where we stand. Um, And that's part of the thing that gets me most excited. But I think through that to your question, Alex, is you start to build the kind of community that finds a place for those that want a place be it that I'm not maybe a, a CEO or an entrepreneur or a rock star innovator, but I want to get engaged and there's a place that I can get engaged and I will find my fit, whatever that may be. It may be on the corporate trajectory because we have a relationship with Delta and Karmitra Burton came and did a speech from Delta And I really connected with it and what she does with supplier diversity at Delta. And I'm thinking, wait, maybe maybe that's what I want to do. I love what she was talking about. It lit a fire into me, but that's what happens in college. My freshman year, I look across the yard and I see what I could be. I see the alpha stepping over there and I'm like, yeah, I think I want to be an alpha Um, or You know, how many college students change their majors because of what they experience in school? I went to UGA as a a management information systems major, computer science, Uh, because my counselor told me that's where all the jobs would be. And that's what I needed to manage, uh, you know, major in. But When I got to college, I went to a couple of programs and I knew that, you know, this wasn't for me. This isn't me. Uh, There was a speaker there, not part of curriculum, to start to talk about sales organizations. And how sales organizations where people who who love to communicate and connect can make a lot of money. And I'm like, well, sales, I never thought about a career in sales, but I changed my major because of that one speaker. The thing that I heard, I went from MIS uh, to communication, what was it? It was speech communications, changed schools completely. My first job out of college was with Hershey Foods Corporation is in sales. And I actually made more money than all my computer science friends in the first three years. (laughs) It's that kind of environment that I hope the Russell Center becomes, because it's not just about your trajectory and curriculum. It's about what we expose you to that allows you to make the decisions that are best suited for you.
1: So who was. um, If I think about how you are really this this person that helps bring the best out of these entrepreneurs or or even beyond entrepreneurs, who was your Jay Bailey at that moment when you were, you know, at at a. at a low. I hate to call it low point of your life because it really was a right. bouncing point up. But who was who was your Jay Bailey at that point when you were homeless and you went from living in Country Club the South to 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 really without a home? And who was that Jay Bailey that helped you?
0: You know, it's 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 really interesting. Um, you know that that ethereal spiritual moment that I had with my mother, although deceased, hmm. um, it was. 18, 19 years of her pouring into me and me not realizing what kind of fuel she was putting in the tank, tapping into that fuel at that point, because she had given me so much of what I needed to push forward. And so it is one of those stories of me not really recognizing the gems that were being dropped until it was time. Hmm. I think that that motivation to go from You know what's perceived as success to being significant was my guiding light, brother. At that point, I had my own motivation, um, my own reason for doing things, my own reasons for wanting to do more, be more, help more, Uh, and this internal fire came from uh, from from what was seeded in me years ago. One of my personal slogans, people have heard me say it a lot, but I say it all the time: plant seeds that will grow trees. Whose shade you may never sit under. Mm. My mom did that. Mr. Russell did that. My mom planted seeds in me that I didn't use to 20 years later. Think about Mr. Russell 70 years ago starting out on this journey. Did he really know that he'd be, you know, his legacy would employ Jay Bailey and we'd be doing this thing for the community? No. But he was planting seeds. And he knew that he'd never sit in the shade of those trees. And when we start to think generationally, um, that's part of my ambition as well for community. Uh, so often we think right in front of us. We're not thinking around the corner. Uh, we're not thinking about three generations yet unborn. Um, and that's part of this legacy play that we have with the Russell Center. So for me, brother, it was it was Millie Bailey, mm-hmm. uh, my mother and everything that she was for community, despite you know, coming from poverty. It's funny. I've never seen a picture of my mother as a child. Um, And it puzzled me for a while. But it dawned on me when I was visiting their home where seven of them were raised in a one-bedroom house. Pictures were a luxury back then. And they just didn't have the money for all of these pictures. Right. Right. And so for her, and if anybody you know is listening, the new Millie Bailey while she lived, I mean, this woman was a whirlwind. I mean, she just absolutely took what she had and increased it a hundredfold. First black president of PTA in DeKalb County, uh, highly engaged all over the city, uh, worked for a meager salary, but that didn't limit her influence. Um, so that kind of power coming from her position, you know, gave me the fuel that I needed to say, what the hell is my problem and why do I feel, you know, why am I having this pity party? Why am I limiting my light? And, uh, it drove me to really go really, really hard for people, for other people. Um, when I went to hope, my whole thing was I was the first employee in the Southeast for operation hope. I was in the sub basement of a building with a broken cell phone and no laptop. Um, within seven years, brother, hope it, you know, Atlanta had become the global headquarters for the organization. John Bryan had moved to Atlanta. Uh, we had, I don't know, 17 offices around the Southeast. This is a period of seven years. Um, but my pace for what we did in Atlanta was all about community and helping people. It was the mission that I was driven by, uh, and the significance mandate that I was on, uh, that it made it all possible. And I got to tie all of that to my mother and the energy. The oil that she gave me.
1: That's great. Well, Jay, let's uh, before we uh, get close to wrapping up here, let, let maybe a few, a uh, few. I well, would we do a few, maybe fun questions here. That uh, I mean, mm-hmm. these were all fun as well too. But, no um, but some some quick ones. So, uh, so some quick response questions. Let's put it that way. And there's no prize at the end. So just just you know, <laughs> just the the beauty of your answers.
0: Okay, what's no, your man. favorite? What's your favorite food? Favorite food? Wow. I love to cook, man. So that's a hard one to state. Favorite food. So what do you cook? So what's your favorite thing to cook? I'm a green egg fanatic. Oh, so I'm a smoke dog. I love smoking food. So yeah. brisket. There we go. I love ch- taking the challenge of a good brisket, full brisket
1: on the green egg. Yeah. So I'll go with brisket. God, see, this is selfish because then I know I'm going to invite myself over. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> All right. What... Um, what is uh your f- current favorite movie or TV s- series?
0: Ooh, I love Billions. Showtime. They they ended the season early on me, so I'm like, what the heck is going on? Uh, <laughs> Greatest movie of all time, coming to America is my favorite. Oh man, the, the, <laughs> no,
1: yeah, that that's man, you're bringing back memories. Um, uh, what makes you mad?
0: What, what's the pet peeve of yours? Pet peeve of mine. I got a few of those, brother. Um, <laughs> ignorance? Yeah. I think just blind ignorance is just, you know, somebody doesn't want to know or do better and just, just they're they're content to just be ignorant. And I think in these times, I think I'm even more it grinds my nerves even more when people just want to. Just be blind to, to everything and just hold on to whatever they believe, uh, mm-hmm. regardless if it's true or false.
1: And what's what's the thing that gives you an
0: instant smile you don't even uh, think about it? You know what? You know, my wife is a, a sense of, uh, of, of of power for me. I love boating. Boat mm-hmm. with well, the water always gives me a smile. So it's, it's a, it's a toss up between my wife and water. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You know, I can't edit that out. So, no doubt It's all so I'm about to say. Okay, that's fine.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so, kind of that. What's what's where do you like to escape and recharge? Which I think is so important for someone that's uh,
0: kind of in the innovation world. Divine, divine intervention, brother. Um, I've always had a lifelong goal uh, of owning mm-hmm. like large parcels of property. Um, My wife and I closed on a very large parcel up on Lake Sinclair right in February, right before the whole world went to hell. Um, But currently now it's about 256 acres that we own up on the lake. Um, It's our it's our dream escape. It's where I go. If I can get up there every week, I try to. Um, And it's where I can leave the whole world behind. I can fish. I can boat. I can hike. I can do whatever I need to do. Uh, and we own it. Back to that basic concept that we even started this talk with, you know, my 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 rallying cries, what do you own and what do you control? And I think that ownership piece, there's something special about being able to stand on my own land. Uh, we bought it in Putnam County, Eatonton, Georgia, where my dad is from. And the power in it, Alex, is it's in an area where my dad wasn't even allowed to go as a child because black folks weren't even allowed to go in that area. Wow. Uh, so to reclaim that legacy and, and to have ownership around it uh, is very special for me. Um, and, you know, I, people know that I've launched my 40 times 10. Uh, 1865, when we were promised 40 acres and a mule. You know, I think it's high time for me to take that 40 and, and times 10 it. Uh, so our goal in that area is 400 acres owned on the lake up there. And, uh, it is, it is a powerful experience every time I walk on that soil.
1: Well, and you know, I'm I'm so happy you mentioned that because, uh, if you follow Jay Bailey on social media and if you don't, you should, um, (laughs) what I love about that, you do talk about this property. I remember when I first saw that come across and I I actually had that, if you were going to mention, I was going to ask you about it and it completely makes, and, and, and I think it's, you see it in your messaging. This isn't your typical, Hey, I'm just bragging on social media. I mean, there's a purpose to, mm-hmm. to what you're doing and, and not to mention obviously pride and ownership and ownership and this great property. And, and you're even talking about entrepreneurial formula as a result of this property. So mm-hmm. It's, it's mm-hmm. Interesting. you took this, this, this investment you're making, achieving person, some personal purpose, but it, it's, it, but you're also really sharing to the world
0: what this means. It's, um, how can I put it, brother? It's hard to aspire to something you've never been inspired by. Right. And from land ownership to timber proceeds to development to personal estates to family offices, all these tools of the wealthy that have been used for years. Um, but my little cousins in Putnam County have never been on the lake. Uh, you know, it's hard for us to escape these institutional, systemic uh, biases and roadblocks if we don't see a different reality on the other side. So when I talk about the property, you know, I know that this property will make me a millionaire several times over hmm. um, but it's not just about money. It's about uh, exposure and an example. Um, it's about another kid saying, if he did 400, I want to do a thousand. Um, it's about, oh, I heard what he said, but I could do it better. Um, I saw what he did, but I could do it bigger. I want to do something very similar. Um, I was talking to a friend who's a wealthy Jewish business guy. And I said, brother, as, as long as your grandson's image of a successful business person looks like you, you'll be fine for generations. The problem is, is that when my grandson's image of what a successful business person looks like also looks like you, then I've got a problem like right now. Um, These examples, this exposure, uh, this belief that it can happen for someone that looks like me uh, is part of the equation, man. And I want to share as much as I learn, I want to share. When I fail, I'll share that too. When I bust my ass, I'll share that. When things don't go right, I'll share that. And when I win, I'll definitely share that because this journey has to be broadcast. So we've got a whole community that's just never seen it uh, and has never gotten those lessons. It's not generational. Uh, And I want to take people on this learning journey that I'm on right now because I don't have a roadmap either. I've just got to kind of get it out of the mud and ask a lot of questions. Um, because I want I want my community. My, our kids deserve to inherit more than just institutional scars and generational scars of injustice. They deserve to inherit more than that. Uh, I hope that I can provide a bit of that with what we're doing.
1: Well, Jay, as we, uh, uh, you know, kind of to wrap up here, um, uh, we started talking about how so many people say when you when you speak, how they're inspired. So let me flip that on you then to kind of close this out. What inspires you?
0: Kids. Kids kill me, brother. Kids that are doing things. uh, Every time I see a kid with a lemonade stand Mm. or selling something or doing something like that's unbelievable, I get such a big energy out of it, man. I was uh, supporting an entrepreneur friend of mine that's got a a small little pop-up biscuit shop this weekend. Uh, and I ran into Kayla, who sells Kayla's uh, Italian Icys. Mm-hmm. Little girl had her cart, uh, her homemade ices that she makes herself and no GMOs, all natural, da-da-da-da. And the pride that she had, I mean, it, it lit a fire in me, bro. Um, and it's, it's, it's the promise of what she could become and how I could play some role in making sure she goes as far as she could possibly go, bro, that thing jazzes me up. And it's, I get most of my inspiration from, from kids that don't see the barriers. They don't understand the systemic racism that may exist or the institutional bias that may exist. Everything is possible. They believe everything is possible. Um, You know, adults are cool. Books are cool. Speakers are cool and everything else, but the purity and the authenticity of a driven child, an innovative child, an entrepreneurial child gets me going every time.
1: There we go. That word authenticity again. That is the secret. Oh, yeah. and, oh, and Jay, yeah. you are definitely uh, as authentic as anyone could be, which is why I love hanging out with you and talking yes. to you. So thanks for your time today, Jay. We, we have so much to unpack and we could probably go another hour or two and I'm oh, sure man. we will again.
0: Well, man. Yeah. It's Alex, a, always a
1: pleasure, brother. Oh, well, thanks for being on the Disruptor Studio. Indeed, man. Talk to you soon. That was Jay Bailey. During my conversation with him, here in the Disruptor Studio. And I'm fortunate that I get to see and talk to Jay on a somewhat regular basis. And I'm always inspired by what he does and his his passion and his his drive um, as he communicates with others. But I tell you, after spending this hour with him in the Disruptor Studio, I'm even that much more in awe who jay is how he does what he does and where it really comes from so i hope that you enjoyed the conversation and i'm sure there's some great insights you're able to bring to your own life so make sure you subscribe and we'll be back to you every two weeks here on this podcast for the disruptor studio where we bring great guests and have these non-traditional conversations with these people like jay who inspire transformation innovation and greatness So check us out also on social media, subscribe today, and we'll see you in two weeks on The Disruptor Studio. I'm Alex Gonzalez.